All right, gentlemen, why are you here? Besides a day out with the boys, cigars available. Oh, we didn't talk about the cigars. There's a cigar for, can they're right there. We, uh, this is not your average men's conference. In fact, this might actually be the first traditional Catholic men's conference in North America. There are men's conferences everywhere. I've looked everywhere. Uh, traditional Catholic, meaning, you know, uh, not just SSPX, but all of those of us who know tradition is the way um, have attended here. And this is everything from the tradition of the Catholic Church. I can't find one in North America that's offered. This might be the first inaugural one, so we beat the Americans again, so shocker there. Um, okay. So there's cigars back there. You can tell Cam worked for like 20 years in hospitality because he literally made them into like a pyramid thing. It's absolutely beautiful. So please take from the top, not from the bottom, so they don't fall out <laughs> like the apples at the grocery store if you take the bottom one. Ultimately though, you're here for more than just the cigars. You're here because you want to be a better man. Maybe you're a practicing Catholic. Maybe you're away from the faith. Something pricked your conscience. Maybe you're not even Catholic and a good friend harassed you to be here. He really is a good friend indeed. But something your gut is telling you that something is wrong. Our culture is disaster. Our children are suffering. Um, and our God is offended. Now today you're going to hear talks from speakers with different styles, but I must warn you. My style is a little bit of the bad cop style. Um, I'll say it like it is, and you might even be ticked with me sometimes. That's good. I hope that everyone here is annoyed enough with some of the things that I say that you're so annoyed that it forces you to go to the confessional. And you, can, you don't have to confess not liking me because most people don't. Okay. Um, I've spent a lot of time in my life playing and coaching in collision sports, rugby, football, boxing, and so forth. And as a player and a coach, I've realized that there are basically two types of players. They do overlap a bit, but there's basically two types. There are what are called stick players, and there are what are called carrot players. This is a reference to horse racing. A stick player reacts to being whacked with a stick and plays harder. That was me. I was a fullback, that's all I ever did. Whereas a carrot player chases the proverbial carrot down and gets into the end zone. Well, if you're a stick player, you're in luck. Because I've never found a stick I didn't like. So, ladies and gentlemen, our culture is effeminate. Our men are soft. And our souls are destined for hell at an alarming rate if we don't get our act together. Men today, on average, spend more time staring at pornography on their iPhones than they do staring at an image of the cross or of the Blessed Mother. Men are weaker in our society than they have ever been at any time in human history. Our civilization is perishing before our very eyes as a result. We've given into feminism, religious indifferentism, scientism, paganism, basically every other ism except the only true ism, which is Catholicism. The highway to hell at this point is an eight-lane expressway. And it's time for men to wake up and smell the sulfur. For wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there are who go in thereat. It's from the Gospel of Matthew. This saying of Jesus Christ could be the motto of our society today, and it is the descriptor of the plight of so many of us in our culture. We are gallivanting down the wide path. We're walking off a cliff in the depths of eternal hellfire. We don't even realize it because we're staring at our phones. 
Our Lord, our Lord told us that many will walk the path to destruction. It's not a matter of whether some will, but it's a matter of how many. Do you know where you're going? Despite what some modern Catholic prelates may say, we cannot hope in the universal sense that all are saved. We have hope for everyone we love to be saved, and we hope in that sense, but it's against Scripture to say that all are going to go to heaven. It's long been time for men to wake up, stand up, grow up, and man up. And we need to be more than just men. We need to be traditional Catholic men of virtue. The devil is real and he wants your soul. The devil and his legions are constantly working to destroy your life, to tempt you to sin, to bring you to hell. Therefore, you must be on the offense and not only in a reactionary or defensive posture. Some people have told me that I'm too extreme and paranoid when I speak about the devil as a relentless enemy, but they're wrong. St. Peter tells us the opposite. He says, be sober and watchful because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, goeth about seeking whom he may devour, whom resist ye strong in faith, knowing that the same affliction befalls your brethren who are in the world. The first pope makes it very clear that the devil is a predator, like a roaring lion. Now this means that he preys on the vulnerable. That's what predators do. And loves to make a show of his power. It also means that we resist the devil by staying strong, as predators do not go after those they cannot overcome. This passage also reminds us not to pay any attention to the roaring. The devil is like a madman who seeks to intimidate by posturing with loud noises. And just a little aside here, um, one of the biggest fads right now in Catholicism is this obsession with exorcisms. Now, on the one hand, I understand it because it's a recognition that the devil is real, but on the other hand, it's a sensationalism. And we need to be careful of those things. When you play with fire, you get burnt. Furthermore, St. Peter tells us that the same affliction befalls your brethren. That's us, who are all in the world together. The devil is after all of us, especially those of us who seek to live in God's good graces. All men are in the same situation, in that we must resist the predator and pay no mind to his showmanship and pompous peacocking. We must support our brethren and remember that all of us may fall at any moment. Now the question we have to ask ourselves is, how do we defend ourselves against Satan? Again, besides all the sensationalism, you don't have to say 47 binding prayers a day. The simplest way is to stay in a state of grace. If you're in friendship with Jesus Christ, you are not in friendship with Satan. It's very simple. So to be in a state of grace, we need to avoid committing mortal sins. And I assume everyone here knows what a mortal sin is, mortal versus venial. Uh, and if we do commit them, we need to go to confession as soon as possible. Thank you to the lads who built the confessional back there, by the way. You might have thought that was part of the hotel, but the Holy Name Society is basically 50% Hartmans who work construction. So <laughs> they put together a confessional for us. And like, I think of it, did you do it yourself? He did himself. President, this president gets his hands dirty. He's, this is a good guy. Better than Trump, even. <laughs> When we commit a mortal sin, we essentially open a door to the demonic. 
This greatly weakens us in our efforts to defend against temptation, and over time our intellect is darkened. St. Thomas Aquinas says that grace builds upon nature. You have a fallen nature, grace builds it up. You fall again, it tears it down. Um, is it any wonder, given this proliferation of sin in our society, that everyone basically seems insane? Given the proliferation of grave sins, such as pornography and fornication, and we're going to tackle the issue of pornography in my last talk of the day, um, it is likely that a large portion of people are persisting in sinful lifestyles. And they know they're wrong, and they're doing them anyway. All this nonsense that you hear from sort of the liberal wing of the Catholic Church, it's like, well, they don't have full knowledge. St. Paul tells us the opposite. Everyone knows God exists. Everyone knows what right and wrong is. It's written on the human heart. If they didn't know what right and wrong was, they wouldn't be shoving it down your throat and making you accept it, you know, pride season every, every year. The only reason they're making you accept it is because they know it's wrong. Whether or not someone has full knowledge of each individual sin, we can't know that, and this is between a priest and a person, and that's not our business. But we can know what St. Paul tells us about, like I said, the inborn nature, and this is what he's of, of the natural law, and he even uh, talks about the Jews and the Gentiles. This is from Romans, <clears throat> and he says, Who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness to them, and their thoughts between themselves accusing or also defending one another. What he's saying there, the minute that somebody, it doesn't matter if they're a Catholic or not, if they're saying somebody did something wrong, they know what right and wrong is. That's why our culture has to redefine it. Because they can no longer contend with it. Whole swaths of people are literally less intelligent than they should otherwise be. Our society is sinful, therefore our society is stupid. You ever wonder why you can't talk your neighbor out of voting for Trudeau? Well, if he is living like the rest of the world, then he's likely watching pornographic material daily. He sterilizes himself, wears a Love is Love t-shirt every June, and thinks, and thinks that quote-unquote vaccines save lives. <laughs> Sin makes us dumb, ladies and gentlemen. Now, you should have uh, in your possession a... I keep saying ladies, it's just a habit. I'm not actually trying to be offensive. Um, <laughs> Just, just, I'm used to being a teacher. Ladies and gentlemen, put your books away. Anyway, sorry. Uh, there's an there's a examination of conscience on every table. I think there's enough for everybody. Read it. Um, and confess if you need to. We have confessions all day. What, what a grace it is to have talks that are geared towards driving you to the confessional, and then it's right there. So utilize this, please. Father Perot learned English just for this. <laughs> I think he started hearing confessions like two weeks ago <laughs> in English. So this is a special treat for us. Now, since this conference is under the patronage of the Canadian Martyrs, this is the Canadian Martyrs Men's Conference, we would do well to talk about them for just a moment. There is no salvation outside the Catholic Church. This is a hard teaching, but a teaching nonetheless. In ages past, that was understood with clarity and conviction. Sadly, many Catholic laymen and clerics are made squeamish by this doctrine. However, it is the foundational truth that drives all missionary zeal and the desire to convert sinners. We might think of Archbishop Marcel Lefebvre. Why would a man ever take this stance that he did? Because he was driven by such missionary zeal that he couldn't stand to see one soul deprived of their birthright. If the Catholic Church is not the only ark 
of salvation, then we can dispense with the demands of the one true faith. Jesus Christ makes uh, this very clear when he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No man cometh to the Father but by me in the Gospel of John. Notice how he does not say, I am one of the truths, I'm one of the ways, I'm one of the ways to eternal life. Jesus Christ is the only Savior, the only Messiah. Without Christ, we're all damned. And we must accept this hard truth in order to see God face to face. Furthermore, Christ established the Catholic Church. Our church is not an invisible assembly of anonymous Christians. It is a visible church with sacraments and a hierarchy. There are things we must believe in order to be Catholic. Mere belief in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior is not enough, regardless of what many Christians may profess. Catholic missionaries of the past understood this. The Canadian martyrs. Now, some people call them the North American martyrs because a couple of them died on, uh, or in New York, technically. Il était les martyrs canadiens. It meant an inhabitant of New France. So, they were les martyrs canadiens. So, we're not giving that one up to the U.S. Okay. Now, including St. Jean de Brébeuf, St. Isaac Jogue, and their companions. They all died brutal deaths for the conversion of the native inhabitants they encountered. These men traveled across the Atlantic Ocean, walked thousands of kilometers throughout the Great Lakes region, and they did so in order that they might convert the pagan aboriginals, specifically the Huron, Algonquin, and Iroquois, or Iroquois tribe. At first, they had relative success in converting the Algonquins, but the Huron and Iroquois tribes were a lot more hostile. Our insane culture, remember it's sinful so it's stupid, our insane culture has labeled all missionaries of the past as colonizers who sought to forcefully impose a civilization on the native people. This is historically inaccurate. Obviously abuses take place, but as a whole we're talking about the general spirit of these wonderful men. And when you analyze the lives of the martyrs, they wintered with the Algonquin tribe and adapted to their way of life. They lived in their dwellings, ate their food, learned their crafts. We have the Huron Carol. A Christmas carol, traditional, because the Huron have an alphabet, because the French missionaries thought they had so much cultural patrimony to give that they made them a way of transmitting their language. We wouldn't even have the writings of the natives in the past if it wasn't for the French Catholics making the alphabet, an alphabet for them to write in. You must love a people to do that. If you want people's history to continue in perpetuity, how much must you love that people? This is why all this nonsense with the Every Child Matters and going after the churches and stuff, it's not just hatred of Western civilization. It's hatred of Christ. This is a Catholic country, historically. Look at the coat of arms for the, for the province of Alberta. The snowshoes on there for one of the bishops and the, and the priests who walked across that land, evangelized, and basically set the thing up. Residential schools were not just, I mean, they're all, again, there's always issues in history, but look at what the actual natives themselves said about these schools while their children were attending. There's one story out of Manitoba where the residential school, the Catholic boarding school burnt down, and the government said that they could have their kids sent to public school, and the parents refused. And they said, we won't send them to school till you build another school for these nuns. That's the truth. Now, they taught them the Catholic faith, bringing them to baptism and saving their souls. Again, if you save someone's soul, you clearly love them. If the North American martyrs were concerned with any sort of colonization, it was a colonization of salvation. 
Initially, Brebeuf had very little success with the Huron tribe, and because of this, he returned home, only to return years later. Throughout his unsuccessful first journey, he lived in extreme hardship, often going days without food. Why on earth would he return to such a tumultuous existence? He did so because he believed, rightly so, that the native people were at great risk of losing their souls if they were not baptized and incorporated into the Roman Catholic Church. Speaking of their evangelization method, Brebeuf wrote that they began their catechizing efforts with the memorable truth that at death, the immortal soul is separated from the body, going either to heaven or to hell. If you are ever told that it is uncharitable to speak so plainly of damnation when you're evangelizing, please regard such nonsense, or disregard such nonsense. True Christian charity des desires the salvation of every soul, and how can we preach the good news if we cannot make it clear that there is bad news? This is annoying. On one occasion, St. Isaac Jogan companions and a companion were captured by the Iroquois and beaten severely with knotted sticks. Their hair, beards, and nails were torn off, and their forefingers, the ones you say mass with, were bitten through. The Iroquois bit off their index fingers and thumbs, to render the priests incapable of offering the holy sacrifice of the Mass. However, Pope Urban VIII granted Jogue special permission to offer Mass with mutilated hands, saying it would be unjust that a martyr for Christ should not drink the blood of Christ. Some years into his journey, St. Isaac Jogue suffered martyrdom at the hands of the Iroquois. They hacked off his head with a tomahawk. After the death of Jogue, the Iroquois attacked the Huron community where St. Jean de Brebeuf was living. Brebeuf had experienced much more success on his second attempt with the Hurons than on his previous. They were converting and coming to know our Lord through the sacraments, praise God. The torture of Saint Jean de Brebeuf and his companion at the hands of the Iroquois was as heinous as anything you could imagine. Through the humiliation of having every inch of their naked bodies beaten with sticks, Saint Jean de Brebeuf continued to comfort his newly found spiritual children who witnessed his passion. Hatchets heated to a red-hot temperature were applied under their armpits and beside their bowels. Necklaces of smoldering blades were placed around their necks. The sadistic torturers then girdled them with bark soaked in pitch and resin, these are fire-igniting liquids, and set them ablaze. Through all of this, Saint Jean de Brebeuf continued to preach the gospel and to offer his life as a passion for the souls of the native people that he loved so much. The Iroquois were so enraged by the saving truth of Jesus Christ that they cut off his nose, they gagged his mouth, and they tore off his lips. The persecutors went on to inundate him and his priest companion with boiling water as a type of diabolical baptism. Large pieces of the priest's flesh were cut off their living bodies and roasted as food. Again, to mock the blessed sacrament of the Most Holy Eucharist. The martyrs finally died as their hearts were cut out of their chests while they were still living. Like Saint Longinus, the Roman centurion who thrust the spear into the side of Christ, the persecutors and tribes who witnessed this death converted to the one true faith. We spit in the face of these Canadian martyrs if we pretend that the salvation of our countrymen will be achieved without having to do anything for it. We make a mockery of their martyrdom if we spread the foolish notion that ignorance of Christ excuses man from hellfire. St. Isaac Jogue 
Saint Jean de Brebeuf and their companions gave of themselves in the most gruesome of fashions in order to save one soul. They knew that ignorance is not bliss and that only one unconfessed mortal sin or unbaptized soul can make a man the eternal property of the Prince of Darkness. Do not fall for the devil's deception that all religions are sufficient for salvation. Waste not even one moment with the absurd notion that ignorance excuses a man from sins. I would add, do not waste a moment thinking that simply being a baptized Catholic on its own is enough. Dying in a state of grace is the only way you're going to see those pearly gates. And given today's world, that is an uphill battle. When we hear stories about these great martyrs, doubtless we ask ourselves if we would have the fortitude to withstand torture in the way that they did. The reason these men could undergo such insane punishment for the glory of God was primarily because they were, of course, inflamed with divine charity and were willing to do anything for God and neighbor. But, on the natural level, they possessed great natural virtue. They were not effeminate. Effeminacy does not mean femininity, as femininity itself is a perfection of female, like masculinity is for men. Effeminacy is a different word entirely. In English, they sound the same. It causes confusion, but they don't mean the same thing. In its etymology, we find a definition for things like softness in its Latin usage. The Greek word for effeminacy in the New Testament is a word that's pronounced malakia, which means softness. St. Thomas Aquinas defines effeminacy as a reluctance to suffer due to an attachment to pleasure. He explains that effeminacy is a vice opposed to perseverance. These Canadian martyrs persevered. These Canadian martyrs were masculine, they were not effeminate. In essence, effeminacy is a vice that is opposed to the cross, which is an unfortunate characteristic that might explain the multitude of soft men who reject life's redemptive sufferings in pursuit of temporal pleasure. Our society, not this room, our society, is full of effeminate men. This is evident in the rampant softness of the average man and the fakery of so-called men that flood our celebrity culture and political landscapes. And just as an aside, uh, masculinity is rising in the secular culture, but it's a parody of masculinity. This Andrew Tate fellow who so many guys like, you know, telling young men to become Muslim because, you know, it's a real man, you get a bunch of wives and they listen to you and stuff. This is, this is just machismo. But our culture is so degenerate and is so feminist that even an imposter looks like the real deal. In a sense, it's hopeful. The bar is very low for us to stand out as real men. So. <laughs> now, one needn't look much further than our Canadian Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, a man who does his best to pose with drag queens at every opportunity. Lord help us. All right, the fact that a man like him is the face of our country shows just how far our society has declined in virtue. This is to say nothing of Joe Biden, not off the hook. I wrote this when Trump was president, my American friends, but it's the same for you guys now, so congratulations. Um, Canada is a nation traditionally known for lumberjacks, strong beer, rugged winters, and hockey fights. Those are four of the reasons you guys came today. Instead, <laughs> Of a great leader, our beloved nation has suffered through a man who seems more interested in auditioning for a boy band than leading the country. Effeminacy is a plague, and it must be eradicated. Today's men are on, on average, not the men in this room, today's men outside this room are on average softer than a soiled diaper, and like a soiled diaper, our society does its best to render them disposable. 
I don't need a man. Well, of course, because there's no men around, so you're not going to find one. Traditional personality traits of boyhood have been labeled as symptoms of ADHD. The natural and manly inclination to take personal responsibility and fight for what is truly just has been usurped by social justice activism. Men used to be adept at hunting and animal husbandry, and some in this room are. But now many men would rather spend their time protesting Kentucky Fried Chicken while eating a Beyond Meat burger. It is this effeminacy that destroys the male-female order as well. Adam and Eve were created at the beginning of time with a properly ordered marital relationship. It's an unpopular teaching, but everything I've said is unpopular. It's an unpopular teaching even amongst many conservative Catholics today, but men are ordained to be the head of the marital relationship. This is from Corinthians. But I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. This headship is based not on, uh, sorry, this headship is based on obedience to Christ, who demonstrates obedience to God the Father, but it's not an arbitrary headship, but instead an acknowledgement of dominion, which we find in the first chapter of Genesis. The word dominion refers to a special sort of authority over the totality of things. This is why we use the word dominate, which stems from the same root word, when we speak of someone totally controlling an opponent in a fight or a game, for example. Now, of course, this is not to suggest that men are meant to dominate women or anything of the sort. In fact, this dominion over creation was given to both men and women. This is one reason why we need to be skeptical of vegetarians or animal rights movements as Catholics. An implied equality between man and the beasts is against divine revelation. In any case, dominion is given to Adam and Eve, and man is called to headship within that dominion. Adam and Eve share this dominion, yet Adam holds a dominion that Eve does not hold. Now, just because a man has dominion does not mean he can be domineering. Men are called to lead as Christ led. It should be obvious what this means. Men are called to die in self-sacrificial service to their bride as Christ did for the bride of Christ, the church. This is yet another thing that our society completely misunderstands. Men are designed, not evolved, we're designed for leadership. And this cannot be established unless they are allowed to lead. Anyone who has ever coached a team will tell you that it is necessary to have one captain, one head coach, and one voice in a time of crisis. In fact, submission to leadership actually facilitates creativity and freedom as proper order is established. Women are free to be women, and men are free to be men in a marriage where men act like Christ. By dying to themselves in service of their wives and children, men allow their families to live in true Christian freedom. Problems arise when women do not submit to their husbands and when men do not leave their wives. It is like the church not submitting to Christ, or if Christ were to abandon his cross. In order to lead like Christ, we must be virtuous. And in order to be virtuous, we must be in control of our passions and our appetites. And to do this, we need to tame the horse. Now, I use this analogy of taming the horse to refer to the fact that we are body and soul. And since our intellect is in our soul, then we must be in control of our bodies and not the other way around. Those who train horses will tell you that there is an aspect of tender treatment that is necessary for the horse. But just as important is the breaking of the horse. Horses like ourselves come with temperaments that are different and therefore react differently to the breaking process. In a fallen world, there is no fairness in biology. So it is useless to complain or bemoan things 
as they have come to us. If you struggle with obesity, then you have been given a cross to bear and that will lead you to heroic virtue. That's your means of sanctification if you look at it that way. If you struggle with substance abuse, then you have been given a burden that needs lifting. I've always struggled with the temperament that I love violence. Shocker. Uh, and if not for high contact sporting events growing up, I wouldn't have been surprised if I ended up in legal trouble. Personally, I can't go myself, let myself to go any significant amount of time without intense exercise or I become like a dog who hasn't been walked. A rabid dog at that. Now, the Holy Bible tells us, a horse not broken becometh stubborn, and a child left to himself becometh headstrong. This is from Ecclesiasticus. We all fall short, save the Blessed Mother, to the glory of God. So instead of complaining about our lot in life, it is time we put in the effort. Now, I don't want to go too on too long here for the first talk. Good timing, okay. Am I on time? I am. Good. Um, so we're going to end here in a couple minutes. But suffice it to say, if we're going to win this battle and take back control of our families, our communities, and restore tradition in our church, then we have to first conquer ourselves. This will require effort. And in my talk later in the day about beating the demon of pornography, we will go over some practical methods to taming our bodies and mortifying ourselves, fasting and exercise and various disciplines. So that way we can finish the race and die and go see God. Now before I finish this talk, I'm just going to read a quick passage here from my book. Shameless plug, they're available for purchase at the back. Um, um, and this is uh, from a chapter about the real Braveheart. I love Mel Gibson, but he took some creative license in that movie. The real story is, is actually in some ways more impressive. I'm sure most men have seen the movie Braveheart, the epic tale of Scottish independence. The main protagonist of the film is, of course, William Wallace, played by Mel Gibson. The other protagonist is Robert the Bruce, the man who became the King of Scotland. In the film, he is a conflicted man who betrayed William Wallace only to come around and carry on his legacy. Now, it seems as if the writers of the film took some poetic license in this area. In fact, Robert the Bruce was a loyal son of Scottish sovereignty from beginning to end. In truth, historians say that Robert the Bruce gave us the name Braveheart. William Wallace was a great hero, but the authors of the film blend that heroism with the two characters for the sake of the film. Before the tragedy of the Protestant Revolution, Scotland was a loyal son of the church. Since then, different Scottish ethnic groups have remained faithful, but the glory of the Catholic Highlands has essentially been lost for now. National sovereignty is a glorious tradition of Catholic civilization, and Robert the Bruce dreamt of an independent Scotland. It is hard for North Americans, our North American minds, to understand but Europe is a continent essentially carved out by ethnicities and family lines. It's tribes, it's clans. The French are Franks and you know, the Italians are Latins and so forth. The Scots trace their, their blood to the soil of the great patriarchs and clans that came before them. This is common among other European groups as well. Um, patriotism is the virtue of honoring your father and, and your mother and the word patriot comes from the word patria, which pertains to fatherhood and refers to our fatherland. The next time somebody asks you to support the patriarchy, say yes. We are required to honor our father and our mother according to the Ten Commandments, which obliges us to be patriotic. 
Robert the Bruce was not only a loyal son of, Scottish, of the Scottish Highlands, but he was a loyal son of Rome. His great longing for an independent Scotland had come to fruition, but he still harbored great ambitions. This was the era of the Crusades. The enemies of the church have labeled the Crusades as a series of unjust religious wars. Shocker. We know the truth. War by nature deals in eternity. Men join the military for a variety of reasons, but they fight for a very simple reason. Men fight because men must fight an enemy. The expression that there are no atheists in foxholes is about more than fear of death. Fearing death is only half the equation. The other half, half is the fear of judgment. We do not fear death alone because we also fear the consequences of repaying what is owed according to what we've lived. A man who stares death in the face ceases to be an atheist because death is unavoidably real. Atheism is a degenerate fantasy that dissolves when, when tested by the fires of hell. When the sun is shining and our bellies are full, we can ignore the grim reaper. We can convince ourselves that all we have in this life is what we have and there is no afterlife. But when we face the prospect of heaven or hell, we let go of human philosophies, death, judgment. <laughs> heaven and hell are four marks etched into the human heart. We cannot ignore them and we must confront them. Soldiers who understand this are valiant and honorable. But those who do not understand this become evil men. A man who believes not in eternal judgment becomes a judge of reality and justifies any action, moral or otherwise. Robert the Bruce was no such man. Robert the Bruce desired to honor God even more than he desired to honor his nation. After a life of battle and service to the fatherland, he longed to go on a crusade. For the heroes of Christendom, the Crusades were battles between Christ and the Antichrist. Saracen hordes had long pillaged and destroyed swaths of Christian civilization. And there was not a more glorious way to die than in battle for our Lord Jesus Christ. The men of this age did not hold to a fantasy of a peaceful death, for they understood that the peace of Christ came with a sword. A life lived in comfort is fertile breeding ground for the devil, especially when we, in our twilight years, if they're spent in avoidance of suffering. As the king of Scotland approached the age of 55, he suffered a stroke. As his death approached, he demanded a great promise from his close friend, Sir James Douglas. Sir James vowed to take, his, take the physical heart of Robert the Bruce with him to the Holy Land. And apparently they got permission to do this after his death, so this wasn't a sacrilege, by the way. Um, if the king could not take back the home of Christ from the Mohammedans with his bare hands, he would give his heart to be carried into the arms of his kin. Upon death, the heart of Robert the Bruce, Bruce was cut out of his chest and prepared for the journey. Sir James Douglas carried the brave heart of King Robert in a silver casket. On the way to the Holy Land, Sir James stopped to help with the reconquest of Spain. Overwhelmed by a surprise attack, Sir James faced certain death. Before he marched toward his death, he took out the heart of Robert the Bruce. Holding up the heart of the king, he shouted to his men, Lead on, brave heart! Now pass, you, now pass thou onward before us, as thou wast wont, and I will follow thee or die. 
He tossed a true brave heart into the midst of his enemies and rushed toward Muhammad's militia. He died by the blade of a sword cast down in service to the king and the king of kings. How many of us would carry the heart of our king into battle today? Sir James Douglas was a loyal servant to his king, and both men were first sons of the king of kings. If Jesus Christ is to reign in heaven and on earth, then he must reign in your life. Even your own life must be expendable in the defense of the kingdom of Christ. The Lord is your general. You are his soldiers. Choose to die in a worthy battle and follow the heart of the king. Heaven is full of heroes. Hell is full of cowards. Enlist in the army of God or risk conscription into the draft of the demon. Thank you.